Well, good morning. We'll try again. Good morning. Hopefully the coffee will kick in and we'll get going. Um, it is an honor for me uh, to be with you all. Um, as Jason mentioned, uh, I have gotten to hear about you for about four to five years. And so it is actually a real big gift to be here to see the answer to many of their prayers, uh, to see the fruit of their efforts. Um, they love you. And that's evident by the way that they have served you and given their lives for you guys. And I just want to encourage you that they are worthy of your respect. They're great men. Um, I'm, I've been blessed to know them, to walk alongside them. They've encouraged me. So thank you guys for having me. Love you guys. Love your church from afar. It's good to be here in Shreveport. It's my first time actually in Shreveport uh, um, or Bossier or wherever the heck I am. Um, and uh, part of being here means that the hotel... Uh, that I'm staying in is as big as my apartment in New York City. Um, so thank you for your blessing me on that front. Um, I want to start in somewhat of an unconventional way, and I'm going to ask you to do an exercise with me. So if you, uh, with the welcome guide that you came in, there was a pen and some space for you to write, and I'm going to ask you to do a gratitude exercise. That in a moment, I'm going to ask you to take 30 to 60 seconds to write down everything you're grateful for. Everything that comes to your mind, that you could just write down everything you're thankful for. Um, So go ahead and do that now. Now let me close us of that time in prayer. Please pray with me. Father, ultimately we're grateful that you as God have chosen to make yourself known to us, that in the midst of confusion that you have sought to be made clear about who you are, about what you want want for our lives and what you want for us to do for you and for others. And so God, let your hand be upon this time that your spirit would move. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And I start with that exercise uh, because neuroscience has revealed to us that it takes 30 to 60 seconds for your brain to register gratitude. That it is a chemical that causes endorphins and dopamine to then be felt in your body to create happiness, to create more joy. And gratitude is what's called a pro-social emotion. That the more gratitude that you have, the more love that you will have for other people. And as you come off of this Sabbath season and seek to begin to extend the gospel outward to your neighbors, uh, what I want to focus on today is your emotional health spiritually is not something just to take care of during a Sabbath season, but is something to engage in regularly. And in fact, your emotional health spiritually is the only thing that will make you effective missionally. 
Because while it takes 30 to 60 seconds to register gratitude, and that will cause you to bless and love other people, it takes less than a second for you to register guilt and shame. And guilt and shame can ruin your day. They can be a cloud over your week. Or they can become scenes that play over and over and over in your mind that could affect you for decades. And not just you, but they then affect every relationship that you are in, whether it be in your workplace, in your marriage, or with your children. And what God has been showing me over the course of this last year is that he doesn't want to just use me as a tool for healing and strengthening other people, but he wants to heal and strengthen me. And only through that process will I be able to heal and strengthen others. And I think that can get lost at times in the church. And so um, one of the stories that really kind of hit home to me over this last couple of months um, just happened within our family. Uh, my sons, I have two boys, 11 and 9, and a girl. And the two boys got stitches on the exact same day, three hours apart. It was like a miracle, except the opposite. My second son, Calvin, was swinging in a swing. And in New York City, we have fences around our public playground, and they're very close to the swings. And so kids, as they normally do, do the swing, and they kind of jump off, right? Everyone remember that fun experience? Well, instead of jumping up, my son jumped out and then landed right by these wrought iron fences, right where his forehead hit, and it cut this massive gash. And that was at 11 (laughs) a.m., And then I took my older son, as my younger one was at urgent care, I took my older son to a baseball game, and he took his eye off a ball, and it hit him right above his eye and sliced it open. And his first question when I got to him was, do I still have my eye? I said, yes, please, God, let him still have his eye. Now, I took him to the, to the urgent care to get stitches, and both of them, the cuts were so deep that they had to get stitches underneath and then stitches over top. And I think what God really began to use that as an analogy for what he wanted to do in me is that there are things that happen to us throughout the week. And they actually kind of hit nerves and they hit uh, areas of healing underneath the actual experience that God is actually trying to seek to heal. That there is guilt and shame that we haven't dealt with. That there are fears and anxieties that we haven't dealt with. And the circumstances of our lives are like that fence or like that baseball. And they open up these wounds. And God does that. He brings those things in our lives in order that he would heal us at a depth of level that we need. In order that as we interact with people who are broken and hurting and having difficult circumstances, we might be able to tell them, this is what God has done for me And I know he wants to do it for you. And God has really been doing that in me over this last year. I've been in ministry for uh, over 18 years. And some of you might say, are you even 18? Yes. Um, That's why I grew a beard, because my baby face would definitely not get me a rental car. Um, And over these last 18 years, there's been seasons where mission has expanded very quickly. And and there has been times where the mission has outpaced my maturity. And when the mission outpaces your maturity, you are setting up yourself and the relationships closest to you for a disaster. That the mission for God that he has given you is dependent upon your maturity with God. 
And your mission could just be your job, it could be your marriage, it could be parenting, or it could be how do I love my neighbor? Whatever it is, it is dependent upon your maturity with God. Or the way that Jesus puts it, that if you do not love yourself, you will not be able to love your neighbor. That's what he says in the greatest commandments. And so I'm going to be reading from you from Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 40, if you have your Bible, or it'll be up on the screen. And what we're going to look at is, what does it take really to fulfill the second commandment? And so let's look at this. Matthew 22, verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I want to take most of our time and just look at that second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because what my experience is that American Christianity has often ignored that as yourself portion of the second commandment. And our society has embraced it in a very unhealthy extreme. That Carly Simon's song, You're So Vain, you probably think this song is about you, is what we encourage people to do. Or our modern day prophet Justin Bieber has told us that if you like the way you look that much, you should go and love yourself. We have this mentality of self-love and self-care that is extreme or rejected. But here we say, we see the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. But I was always taught and raised in the church that there was two things I need to focus on, love God and love others. That my worth was found in my ability to be caught up in God and my ability to benefit others. But I was never really allowed to think about that as yourself. And maybe that was your experience as well. And so... The two sections that kind of I want to unpack on this is first the errors that we can make in loving ourselves. The errors that we make in loving ourselves and then the godly gift of self-care. The errors we make and then the godly gift. So the errors we make in loving ourselves. So I'm going to look at two errors. The first error is what psychologists have actually called selfie syndrome, which obviously has kind of been named that because of the rise of the selfie. And it is a dangerous narcissism that causes self-obsession that every relationship, every conversation becomes about you. That you are marked by being quick to get angry and slow to listen. That you turn every conversation into how it impacts you. Now the way that that impacts the way you can love someone else or even love God, I think is found in a story that was in the New York Times a few weeks ago. Out in California, in Los Angeles, there was a new art exhibit that was put up. There was a series of pedestals with crowns on top of it. And a woman seeking to get the perfect picture went to the first pedestal to to crouch down to make sure the crown was kind of over her head. And in taking the selfie, she knocks down the first pedestal that resulted in a domino effect and destroyed $200,000 worth of art. (laughs) But what was funny is that the New York Times was highlighting this is just the latest in a series of selfie-related art destruction. That back in 2015 in Italy, two tourists 
destroyed a 300-year-old statue because they wanted to get the first, the best selfie picture. Climbing up on top of it, they knocked off a crown and destroyed a 300-year-old statue. Now that is a picture of how selfie syndrome ruins our ability to show our neighbors love. Because the things that mark selfie syndrome, narcissism, self-obsession, quick to anger, slow to listen, are the exact opposite of who God is. And we are supposed to be his image bearers that when people interact with us, they would say, that's what God's like. And so selfie syndrome actually destroys a beautiful image that the others could see of God because God is abounding in loving kindness. He is quick to listen. He is slow to anger. He's patient. And so one of the areas that we can find ourselves in is this self-love, selfie syndrome. But there's an opposite error. The second error is selfless syndrome. And psychologists say this is more common in women, especially mothers. And the women say amen. And this is that there is a consistent self-denial and self-sacrifice, always giving of yourself for the good of others and never taking time for yourself. And it is actually more common and I think acceptable in the church because it sounds more spiritual and sounds more noble. We even have scriptures that we feel like back it up because doesn't Jesus say in Luke 9, 23 that you are to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me? Or other passages that say abstain from the desires of the flesh. Isn't that this constant call of self-denial and self-sacrifice? Well, two objections to that. The first is that Luke 9 is often taken out of context when it is applied to you needing to take up your cross and sacrifice at every single moment every day. Because what he's saying there is it's about the ultimate call of salvation. That you would not trust in yourself daily as the one who can make yourself good and righteous and pure before God. But that you would only trust in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection as the defining reality of salvation. And the second aspect is just because God says abstain from fleshly desires. Does not mean that all of your desires and all of your needs and all of your wants are sinful. That though your desires can find their end and find their direction toward unhealthy and evil and sinful means, it doesn't mean that they're all wrong. And so when we buy into selfless syndrome, we think we're being more spiritual or more noble. We're ultimately hurting ourselves. And that that will result in us not being able to love our neighbor, love our spouse, love our kids in a way that God loves them. It depletes our resources. And so I can't help but wonder what syndrome has defined your life over this last week or month or season. And there's reasons for selfie syndrome. When we experience pain and difficulty, it's easy to turn inward in pity. Or when things are going so well, it's easy just to bask in the glory of our ambitions being realized. It's also easy to find ourselves in selfless syndrome thinking that we're making up making up for lost time, making up for mistakes that we have made. Where have you found yourself? Well, the cure for that is to return to the first and greatest commandment, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because what you love is what you become. And so if you want to become more like God, it's returning not to loving yourself in unhealthy and erroneous ways, but to actually love God again, to return and come back.
And in doing so, what you're going to find is that this relationship is not just a one-way street that you're supposed to love God. But that in relationship, you experience a love from Him, a statement of value, of worth, of time, of affection, of approval, that then allows you to say, I'm worthy of caring for myself and loving myself in a healthy way. But the big question is how? So let's look at the godly gift of self-care. Because self-care has been outsourced to Dr. Phil and Oprah and a bunch of self-help resources. And in the church, it's kind of a blank canvas because we don't know how to do it and that without it being in a way that makes us feel gross or selfish. But here he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, meaning that the Bible has a lot to say of how we love him, love God. The Bible has a lot to say for how we care for ourselves, and the Bible has a lot to say for how we care for others. And so we need to embrace what the Bible has to say about that. Now, I want to be clear about something, because flying on an airplane here, I'm reminded of a constant self-care analogy. And that's that if, if you've been in an airplane recently, they go through the kind of the safety technique that none of us are paying attention to anymore because we've been on planes a thousand times. And they say, in case of emergency, put on your mask before you put on the mask of a child, right? Now, the problem that I have with that analogy is that that's tend to be how we live, and that's from crisis to crisis, But God's vision of your life is not that you would run into a crisis or suffering or challenge and then take care of your body or then take care of your soul or then take care of your spiritual system when you run into crisis. But it's that you're always and constantly stewarding how God has loved you and valued you and cared for you in such a way that you could be ready in season and out of season to care and love and extend the gospel. But if you are not stewarding the way that God values and loves you well, you won't be able to do that. Um, I was visiting uh, a church member in New Jersey across the water. Um, I don't venture into Jersey often, but when I do, um, I discover that there's this whole other way of living where you get to have a huge house and a backyard. Um, it's, it's really beautiful. Uh, but I, I saw these two homes across the street from each other on the same corner, and I'm going to show you a picture of them, and you may be able to see them. So if you could put the first picture up, so you may not be able to see it, but it's a very beautiful, where cared for home, manicured lawn. It's got this beautiful porch with windows all around it that you could host people in, and it's, it's amazing. But right across the street, in the second picture, is this house, and you can't really see all of it, but it is boarded up, it is dilapidated, the windows are broken, it is abandoned, and it looks awful. Both of these homes were made in the 1800s. The difference between what they are now and what they were then is how well people cared for them and stewarded them for their intent. One is a place that can continue to be hospitable for centuries. One is abandoned and empty and unworthy of even bringing people inside of it. And when I saw that, I felt God going, which are you? Are you the one that is going to care for yourself so that you can repeatedly care for others? Or are you only good for a season? And then it's time to board up the walls, tear it down, and build something new. So which house are you? 
See, if you want to steward yourself well to be that house that is maintained for centuries in such a way, the godly gift of self-care is found in, I'm going to go two ways. The first is that you would love yourself as God loves you. You would love yourself as God loves you. Now, because you are saturated in a southern Christian context, because I drove here and passed about 15 different churches, God loves you is probably something that may just wash over you at this point. And it may be something that is more somewhat of an aspirational belief and not really a functional belief. Meaning that you can say it and it can sound right and it can sound good, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Because functionally, many of us don't operate with a truth about how God loves us. We can say that God loves us no matter what we do and what we've done in our past and that our love is based on the gospel. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can proclaim these verses and then functionally on Monday live as if God only really loves me if I'm perfect, if I'm good, if I fill out my spiritual checklist for that week. Now, I'm not condemning spiritual checklists. But if your value in the sight of God and in your feelings of of God's love for you is based upon that, then your functional belief is not that God loves you. Your functional belief is that you need to perform for God, and that's the way to decrease fear because he'll provide for those who provide for themselves. Your functional belief about guilt and shame is that if I overcome that, if I prove my value and prove my worth, and it's not based in those guilt and shame moments, then God loves me and values me. And so my challenge to you is to make sure that you actually are embracing this as a functional belief, that you're resting in that and and trying to live that out. And one kind of litmus test for you is if you're treating people as God, that God loves them only if they check off the spiritual checklist that you've created, that probably means that you are functioning by a spiritual checklist with God. So how do we stop doing this? Well, honestly, I believe this is why we need community. Because there are times when I'm in my life that I don't have the faith that I need to truly believe and live underneath God's love. And this is where community comes in, and this is an ability to really find um, the power of vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is kind of a catchphrase. Brene Brown's TED Talk is all about power of vulnerability. It's been watched over 20 million times. We've embraced that in the church with accountability. But we've also been able to find a way to make vulnerability like this really crappy Christian subculture version. And instead of vulnerability, we actually have calculated openness. And calculated openness is that if I share this struggle, I know that it's okay to struggle with that in the church so people aren't going to distance themselves, look at me sideways, and gossip about me, right? But if I share this one, if I share this struggle that I've shared with no one, if I share the shame and the guilt that I've experienced resulting from my childhood, if I share the sin that I've done this week in this arena— that's risky. I might lose a friend. People may look at me differently. See, the power of vulnerability really is, is the kind of way that we express our functional belief about whether God loves us no matter what. That we will take the meaningful risk with the people that we can trust with that meaningful risk 
so that we can actually experience the true power of vulnerability, not in expressing ourselves, because that's not where power of vulnerability is found. Power of vulnerability is found when you express yourself in a community that responds in a gospel manner. And the way that you respond is just by four powerful words. If someone shares with you sin that may shock you, And those four powerful words are, I love you anyways. I love you anyways. And that's hard to do, especially if that person is sharing something that's hurt you personally in a marriage, in parenting, in a close friendship. But that is how Jesus and God has treated us. That we have offended and rejected and rebelled against him. And Jesus said, while you were yet sinners, I died for you. I love you anyways. And that type of gospel application is something that any of us can do. It's not a professional act. It's merely going, what God has done for me, I do to you. And that moment of healing is necessary for us to finally believe functionally that we are valuable in the sight of God so that I can value myself. Because until then, we can't even get to self-care. Until then, we can't even get to the practices and lifestyle that is actually good for our bodies until we believe they're valuable. And sometimes we just need people to tell us. And I believe that that this church can be that type of community that really embraces the fact that it's the loving kindness of God that leads us to healing, that leads us to repentance, that leads us to change. That you can then love yourself as God loves you. And and the self-care aspect, the second aspect of this, is that you would love yourself the way God has made you. The way God has made you. And what I mean by that is that because you are an image bearer of God, Built into the design of God is that your body and your emotions are holy and good and right and perfect. Now that doesn't mean that we're always going to use them for good and right and holy and perfect purposes. But the design, you, God says, are wonderfully, beautifully, perfectly made. Now, let me tell you how that's actually the wiring of that. And my wife's becoming a a health coach, and so she's studying nutrition. And one of the things that her classes taught her is that 80 to 90 percent of your serotonin, which is your happiness hormone, that if you feel good after eating, it's because of this. 80 to 90 percent of it is produced in your gut, and it is dependent upon what you eat. And when I come to the South and eat Chick-fil-A again, I say amen. That shows us that there are chemicals and wiring built into our system that God has made in such a way that will produce healthiness, happiness, joy, just built into how we physically act and live. And the same is true for your emotions. One of the freeing truths in my life over this last year is hearing that my emotions are chemical reactions that I feel, not moral choices that I make. They are chemical reactions that you feel, not moral choices that you make. Because I was raised in an environment, been in a church environment, where certain emotions were labeled as wrong. They were labeled as sinful, even for feeling them. 
But what Jesus is trying to show us and God is trying to show us is that you cannot label your emotions as wrong if I have made them and wired them and built them into your system. But the question is, how do we use them? And looking at that, we have to look at Jesus as the model. Not just as someone who saved us in his death and resurrection for years, but as a model to follow and live after. And when we look at the way that Jesus exercised his emotions in a holy and amazing way, we see Jesus exercising anger, which is often seen as off-limits. Because he walks into the temple, and in the space where those who are farthest from God, the Gentiles, are supposed to be able to draw near to God, they've set up a shop. And they've made religion in such a form and fashion that those who are farthest from God cannot grow near. So Jesus goes in the corner and he lets that anger simmer. And he, he develops a whip. And then he comes and he throws over the tables and he drives everyone out. Because we, like Jesus, should be angry when those who are farthest from God can't come near because of our religious constructs. We see Jesus as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus Weep with Mary. Grieve loudly and emotionally and expressively. Because he knows that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. There's freedom to weep and to grieve. But we also see him laugh, enjoy dinners and meals in such a way that the Pharisees condemned him because of his joy and laughter and fun. And Jesus was holy and perfect and pleasing to God. Now, how did he do it? I think the first way that he did it is he avoided burnout by shrinking the scope of his mission. Jesus wanted to redeem the entire world, right? We know that. He wanted to reshape and recreate and restore everything that was broken. But he says, I only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, he has an understanding of his calling and his scope and the domain in which God has placed him. And what often happens is that we can expand our mission beyond where God has actually placed us or the life stage that God has placed us in. This happened to me and my wife when we, when we used to live in Austin before we lived in New York. And at the Austin Stone Community Church, we helped start the college ministry. I was working as a civil engineer. We just had a community group of college students that grew from 9 to 40 over a year. Then they said, codify what you're doing, expand it, launch it. You got three weeks. Oh, did I mention my wife was nine months pregnant at the time? Um, and on the night that we launched college ministry that would ultimately reach over 1,000 college students, my wife gave birth to our first son, Eli. But over that first year, we said, having a child is not going to stop us. <laughs> We love God and love others so much. Let's just bring him along. <laughs> While my wife nurses during a college community group, which is really awkward. And we did that for a year. And at the end of that year, my wife and I were spent. We were empty. And we had to take the entire summer just off. We just retreated from church. We retreated from serving. We retreated from college students. And we just cared for each other. And that's when God taught us about Sabbath. And God taught us about boundaries. And God all along was saying, I'm blessing you with this child so that you'll slow down. So that you'll care for your wife and you'll care for your family. Because if you don't care for them, it doesn't matter what you do for me beyond that. 
And there are seasons and there are times where we have to actually shrink the scope of our mission to, max, to match the domain of mission that God has given us. And we may experience the pains of exhaustion and emptiness because we have gone outside. We are overreaching the domain in which God has given us. So you only have so much emotional energy. You only have so much bandwidth. And like Jesus, the way to be emotionally healthy spiritually is to shrink it down to where God has placed you for this season. So as you come off of this Sabbath season, take the time to assess where am I and what is God calling me to? But the second aspect of it, specifically in regards to emotions, and I'm going to get real practical and probably real cheesy, (laughs) is that you would let your emotions be real. And by real, I'm going to use an acronym. And my encouragement is that you let them be real, R-E-A-L, instead of wrong and raw. Now, wrong emotions, uh, we've learned throughout church history, especially modern church history, that labeling something wrong and telling people to abstain from it doesn't actually work. Um, If I was raised in kind of the Joshua Harris, I kiss dating goodbye movement in the church, which basically said dating was sinful and wrong, and you should only court and get married. And that worked for no one. Um, In fact, he's doing a documentary right now just to prove that he wouldn't actually recommend people reading his own book anymore. But we have thought that if we just label emotions or desires wrong, then people will be okay. And God said, you can't label something I've labeled right wrong. Now, in reaction to that, our culture of authenticity now says, be raw. If you feel it, do it. Don't let anyone stop you from exercising how you feel because how you feel is good and right. Go and do. (laughs) To that, God says, whoa. (laughs) So, one of the things that God has really taught me is this acronym REAL. (laughs) Forgive me for my cheesiness, but hopefully you remember it. The R stands for read the feeling. Read the feeling. Just ask yourself, what emotion am I having? Because you need to have kind of a, a gap between stimulus and reaction. Something happening in your life and then you acting on it. That's healthy. And so you may just have to take a step back and read the feeling, ask what emotion am I having? And here that you're supposed to be having an emotion. Ephesians 4.26. We're commanded to be angry and do not sin. Be provoked. Feel. But don't sin in that feeling. So read the feeling. What emotion am I having? The E is embrace the emotion. Embrace the emotion. Just being able to say, this is the emotion and this is why. Uh, The Greek philosopher Aristotle described anger as desire with grief. Saying that anger arises because we wanted something and we didn't get it. And so we have to ask the question, Why did I want this and what happened? This is the emotion that I'm feeling and this is why. So read the feeling, embrace the emotion. Number three, ask God for what the emotion wants. Ask God for what the emotion wants, meaning go vertical with it before you ever go horizontal. Now, I say that because that's exactly what we're being commanded to in Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians 4.26, the whole verse says, Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down in your anger, which is often used as very terrible marital advice. Because if you've ever tried to resolve an argument at 11.30 or 1 in the morning, you know the best thing for you to do is just go to sleep, even if it's on the couch. (laughs) Because that's not what the Scripture is saying. That's actually quoting Psalm chapter 4. And in Psalm chapter 4, David has been driven out of his own kingdom by his own son Absalom. And the picture that we get is David is in a cave, looking out over the city of Jerusalem, his kingdom. And he is talking with God. And in that psalm, it says, be angry and do not sin. Lie on your bed and ponder. And what we see with him is that he is praying and journaling his emotions to God. And he's unable to resolve it. But he knows who is. He knows God can accomplish more than his emotions and his reactions can ever accomplish. So we need to get in the habit of asking God for what the emotion wants. And then the L is let God guide the action. Let God guide the action because here's the deal. It's going to be different every time. It's going to be different every time. And honestly, that's frustrating because I would just want a law. Anger, do this. Fear, do this. But what we see in Psalm 4 and Romans 12 is that when people persecute you or they hurt you, sometimes you're just supposed to do nothing. In fact, you're supposed to bless. But then Jesus says that if you have something with your brother or they have something against you, you might need to leave worship worship right now and go and resolve that. But how do you know when? I believe the only way is if you do let your emotions be real. Do you read the feeling? You embrace the emotion. You ask God for what the emotion wants and then let God compel you and stir you to act in righteous and holy ways. Now, how do we know that that will result in effective missionality? Again, we look to Jesus. One of the most famous missional verses, missional meaning going to love your neighbor, is Jesus in Matthew 9 saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And in that passage, what we see is that Jesus sees the crowds and he feels. It says he feels compassion, that there is a gut reaction that Jesus has, that he is emotionally healthy because he's gotten away with the Lord multiple times, alone with him, praying with him, talking with him. And so now when he sees the crowds, the feeling that he gets is not annoyance, it is compassion. And then he says, therefore, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then the entire chapter after is him sending them out to go and be the answer to their own prayer. See, as you come off this Sabbath season, my challenge to you is to ask, where am I today? Where are you? Are you stuck in selfie syndrome? Are you stuck in selfless syndrome? Are you running on empty? Are you running on full? And how do you identify the scope that God has, has given you for mission? And then how are you going to create habits in your life that allow for your emotions to overflow in healthy ways so that you can love yourself the way that God has loved you, so you can love your neighbor as yourself? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how good you have been to us. Thank you, God, that even though there are times when we can't love ourselves, you do love us. 
Father, you know every individual in this room. They are your sons and your daughters. They are your creation. You have made them. You have wired them. You know their past. You know their present. You know their pain. You know their victories. And so, Jesus, as we sang earlier, you are the resurrecting king. So, God, resurrect, heal, fix. God, what all of us are bringing in today, give us the space to deal, God, with all the pain that we have, that we might be healed. Give us the strength, God, that we don't have of our own, that our strength may increase, that we could strengthen others. God, let us love you, and then let us love others as we love ourselves, God. Guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have a time of communion this morning. Um, and as you'll notice, there are tables set up on both sides of the stage. And so we want to invite you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to come to the table and um, take the bread and dip it in the juice and celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus broken and shed for you this morning. How about just take a few moments before you come and just spend some time with him, confessing and just asking him to show you what it is this morning that either from his word or from our time of worship that he would like you to take into the rest of your day or into this week. What is that? What is that point that the spirit's driving home for you this morning? Just spend some time with him and then come as you feel that
Father God, we love you. We give you praise and honor this morning. We thank you for this time together as a body to worship you, to hear your word, God. May we take it to heart. May we uh, 